Would you turn with me in your Bibles tonight to James chapter 5? James chapter 5 this evening. Tonight, we're going to look at the last few verses here in the book of James. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. We'll look down to verse number 20. In a sermon that I've titled, Effectual Fervent Prayer. Effectual Fervent Prayer. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. History tells us that James was a devout prayer warrior uh, who often spent hours at a time pleading for his people, pleading for his nation. I want you to listen to how one ancient writer described him. He said of James, He used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people, so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. So often did he pray that he was referred to as old camel knees because he developed knots in his knees from his long seasons of prayer. From his excessive righteousness, he was called James the Just. Now, I think most of us probably cannot identify with such a prayer warrior as James. And that's not a, a word of insult to anyone. But I don't know anyone that has developed knots in their knees from extensive time in prayer. Now, that's not to say that the only way to be effectively praying is on your knees. But most of us don't pray long enough to even become uncomfortable in the posture or the position that we are when we pray. Now, there is no set position that God has said, if you're not in this position, then it's not considered real or effective prayer. But it would be helpful if your praying and the position that you're in keeps you awake. Now, there have been times where at night the Lord will put someone on my heart or on my mind while I'm laying in bed, and I've often fallen asleep praying for them. At a time when you least expect it, there is people that come to mind, and I've learned that it's better to take a moment to pray for them. And to avoid falling asleep when I'm in bed and someone comes to mind, I made it a point to just sit up a little bit and to pray, and then once I'm done, lay back down. But regardless of, of how you pray and even when you pray, the point is that we as believers need to be praying. We need to be known as people that pray, that are fellowshipping with God in this wonderful, uh, wonderful channel that God has availed us. The reality of the situation, and if you think about it, for, for as much as we, we talk about prayer, for as much as we even say that we will pray, our prayer life should be booming. We, we should have such a thriving and a vibrant prayer life uh, based on how much we talk about praying and even wanting to pray. But I think the reality of the situation is that Christians constantly find that they're too busy to pray. In a book titled, Too Busy Not to Pray, author Billy Hybels writes, Prayer is an unnatural activity. From birth, we have been learning the rules of self-reliance as we strain and struggle to achieve self-sufficiency. Prayer flies in the face of those deep-seated values. It is an assault on human autonomy, an indictment of independent living. To people living in the fast lane, determined to make it on their own, 
Prayer is an embarrassing interruption. Prayer is alien to our proud human nature. Now, I think there's some truth in those words. And that is why I believe the Holy Spirit led James here to write about prayer right after he instructed on the importance of patience. Now, we're not going to look at that passage, but the first 12 verses or so there in James chapter 5, it deals with the importance of believers demonstrating patience. When situations arise where we must exercise patience, prayer is essential. You're open to James chapter 5. Would you follow along as I begin reading at verse number 13, and I'll read down through verse number 20. James 5, beginning with verse number 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to identify four elements of effectual fervent prayer. Four elements of effectual fervent prayer. Now, first thing I want you to notice is we should be praying for emotional issues. We should be praying for emotional issues issues. Notice again what it says in verse number 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. We should be actively praying for emotional issues. This verse mentions afflictions, which is in the context speaking of emotional affliction or mental affliction, not so much the physical. He's going to get to that shortly. But when you tie this verse in with the previous verses, which are talking about patience, we can see that there are two ways to face challenges that we're going to have in life. Verse 12 encouraged us to handle matters honestly. Notice what it says just in verse number 12. It says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. We're encouraged there in just that one verse to handle matters honestly. And then the very next verse, verse 13, which we just looked at, we're instructed to pray. Now, I can tell you, many people are less inclined to pray when emotionally they're suffering because they just don't feel up to it. They feel that they must get in a better frame of mind before they can ever think about approaching God in prayer. If you ever think that you're not in the right frame of mind to pray, that's probably when you need to be praying the most. Waiting to get ready, waiting to get right emotionally before you pray is like telling yourself that you're not going to go to the emergency room until you stop bleeding. Does that make any sense? As the song tells us, in seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. It's not following the seasons of distress and grief, but in them, the song says. Now, that's not scripture, but it's still a good point 
It's not after, it's not waiting to get ready before we can go to God in prayer. It's going to him in prayer in order to get ready. If you really want relief from your emotional and mental suffering, go to God in prayer. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, if I feel myself disinclined to pray, then is the time when I need to pray more than ever. When we're holding off from prayer, all we're doing and all we're promoting is our own prolonged misery. We're adding to our sorrows as we cut ourselves off from God and his power to bring us the relief that we so desperately are longing for. Now, we do this often because we think that we can handle whatever problems we're facing, but the problem is that we find ourselves overwhelmed more than we were ever before. And those feelings of stress, those feelings of anxiety, those feelings of discouragement are only going to continue to show up, or worse, they're never going to leave. Don't be a prayerless Christian. And don't wait to pray until you think that things are going to get better or until you start to feel better. Prayer is the answer to making life better. Is any among you afflicted? He says, let him pray. Not when you start feeling better, but while you're afflicted, let him pray, he says. Now in the rest of the verse, James suggests another emotional response when he says, is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Now this carries the idea of being cheerful. I think there are many cheerful Christians out there who are just horrible at showing it. For whatever reason, our disposition, our natural countenance suggests that we're more sour than we are merry and cheerful. Now, some of you are trying to put up a smile on your face right now, but I think as a whole, we're just terrible at this. Even though on the inside, we may indeed be merry as the verse suggests. James suggests that if we're merry and if we're cheerful, it should show. It should show. One evidence of our cheerfulness is found in our singing. It says, as any merry, let him sing psalms. Singing and praising God is viewed in the same measure of seriousness as praying to God. Again, the entire verse says, as any among you afflicted, let him pray. As any merry, let him sing psalms. Prayer and cheerfulness through singing kind of go hand in hand here. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul includes prayer along with singing as proper praise that we need to be offering to God. He says, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. When you're filled with joy, which every Christian is due to the, the grace of God in your life, when you're filled with that joy, it is proper for us to be singing praises to God. The reason this is so important is because James is showing us that God is our God, regardless of the circumstances. If you're afflicted, God is still your God. If you're merry, God is still your God. No matter what, go to him. Worship him. You're worshiping him just as much in prayer as you are when you sing. Worship him. When you're filled with joy, which every Christian should have, you should be boiling over, billowing over with joy and songs of praise to him. When life is going hard and we're emotionally or mentally afflicted, we can always and immediately go to God in prayer to find relief. That's what he's saying here. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. When life is going good and you're feeling cheerful and merry and just excited, we should go to God in praise as we sing about his goodness to us. Whether God is the one 
lifting us up out of the pit and the misery that we're in, or he's the source of our gladness and joy. God is our sufficiency from day to day. We mentioned this in our Sunday school hour, and I've mentioned this before with regards to our portion in our prayer bulletin that is dedicated to blessings and praises and how pathetic it looks where there's just this tiny little section and sometimes there's maybe one little note there of blessing and praise and then we have five gigantic columns of all these prayer requests and again there's nothing wrong that we we should be praying for all these things but can we not Remember that there are so many things to be excited about that God is doing in our lives that we have reason to be rejoicing in him. Maybe we need to rethink that. Maybe we need to flip those and have the blessing portion take up the majority of the prayer bulletin. Either way, it should be not forgotten on us that God is our God in all circumstances. If you're afflicted, go to him in prayer. If you're merry, sing psalms to him. Either way, you're going to God in some capacity. God is your sufficiency from day to day. So pray for emotional issues. But secondly, pray for physical issues. Pray for physical issues. Look at verse number 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I will admit that this passage can be very easily misinterpreted, and this is evidenced by the number of differing opinions on this verse. If you look at a commentary and look at a handful of commentaries, every single one of them may, some, may say something completely different about what this verse is saying. But some will use this passage to suggest that God wants to heal every sickness, every physical sickness, while others will suggest that God often doesn't heal for the purpose of teaching us something valuable in the midst of our sickness. Now, some people equate every single sickness with sin, that you get sick because of unconfessed sin in your life, and others blame different causes. But still, it's, I find it hard, some people find it hard to explain why spiritually mature believers get physically sick. Some people blame the devil for all their sickness. Some people claim to have powers over sickness and, and are able to heal them, whether in a touch or through the anointing of oil, while others will even claim to have the ability to just speak forth healing powers. Now, some of these things jump out to you as being completely ridiculous, and they are. But what exactly does the Bible say about healing in this passage? As James speaks about a believer becoming sick, and this is the context here, a believer becoming sick, he mentions three things that need to be done. So again, in verse 14, he says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the first thing we see is that the sick man must call for the elders of the church. Now notice it starts with the sick person. He is the one taking the initiative here. There's nothing said here about the elders of the church holding a, a healing service in the church but they're responding to the call of a sick person by coming to the home of the sick person. All of what is described in this verse takes place in the home of the individual. The sick man calls for the elders of the church. The second thing we see is that the elders come and pray over the sick person. Again, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. Now look at verse 15 as well. It says, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins... They shall be forgiven him. So verse 15 tells us the instrument for raising up the sick person is not his own prayer, but the prayer of the elders that come. 
Not his own faith, but the faith of the elders. Now that is the instrument. But notice that the power that raises the sick person is not the elders' prayer or their power or even their faith, but the direct intervention of God. He is the one who brings the healing. Despite what some people may say, this passage is clear in teaching that any healing of sick people that will be seen is always going to be directly the power of God and never through the power of men. They call for the elders of the church. The elders of the church come and pray over him. And then third thing we see is that the elders are to anoint the sick person with oil, it says, in the name of the Lord. Now, in biblical times, oil was widely believed to have healing and very therapeutic value. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 6, the Bible says, From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. The idea is, is that ointment or oil had some therapeutic value to it. In the story of the Good Samaritan, which we're probably very familiar with, we read in, in Luke chapter 10 and verse number 34, it says, He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and to, took care of him. So there, again, the idea, this ancient belief, was that oil had a, a lot of therapeutic value. And there was, this is what he, the, the Samaritan instituted as far as bringing care and, and, and uh, healing to this individual that was beaten and left for dead. We also read in Mark chapter 6 and verse 13, it says, And they cast out many devils, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. Now, all of these instances describe the working of men. God was employing different men with this instrument of oil. But Jesus, in all of the healings that we see him do, never is seen using oil in any of them. Strangely enough, even though we only have a handful of occasions where oil is mentioned with medicinal use, it was embraced by the early church as a practice to help heal those that were sick. I think it needs to be clearly stated, though, that no oil, no amount of oil will ever be enough to, to, to bring healing to any sick individual. So don't go dousing people that are sick with oil just over their heads thinking that that's going to be the miracle cure. The healing that we see in the Bible, every instance, and with any healing that we even see today, does not come through the power of oil or even through the power of men, but only through the power of God. The sick believer is the one asking for the healing from the Lord. Sometimes God heals a person directly without involving any means, without involving any sort of individuals coming and praying over him. Sometimes God employs these means and has the elders of the church come and they pray over their person and they anoint the individual with oil and then there's healing that takes place. But this passage teaches us that the prayer of faith will heal and that medical means are to be used. Now a perfect example of this is seen in Acts chapter 28. This is an instance where uh, Paul and Luke are shipwrecked in, in Malta. And the father of a certain man named Publius was very sick. And it says of them in verse number 8, it says in Luke 28, And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. Now the, the word there healed that's used in that context is describing the healing of God using nothing extra. No other means, no other, uh, no, no other methods, just straight the touch. When word got out that this man had been healed in Acts chapter 28, naturally, every single person that was on that island who had any sort of ailment, who had any sort of affliction, gravitated towards, towards Paul and, and sought out to be healed as well. And listen to what it says in the very next verse. 
Acts 28, verse number 9. It says, So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed. When these other individuals were healed in verse number 9 there in Acts chapter 28, there's a different word that is used as far as their healing is concerned, and it denotes that medicine was used in the healing process for them. Sometimes God heals without anything extra. Sometimes he heals through medicine. But if any healing is ever going to be seen, God is the only reason that it is seen at all. One author has put it this way. He said, when aspirin works, it is the Lord who has made it work. When the surgeon sets the broken limb and the bone knits, it is the Lord who has made it knit. There's always a spiritual dimension in healing. On no occasion should a Christian approach the doctor without also approaching God. Third, we should also be praying for spiritual issues. Look at verse 15 and 16. James chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Pray for spiritual issues. I want you to also look at what it says in verses 19 and 20, because I think these, these verses are connected here. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. I do believe that many, many physical issues and physical afflictions that people deal with are indeed a result of sin. People get all sorts of sicknesses for vile and unnatural practices. People develop serious sickness due to consuming alcohol and abusing drugs. The Bible teaches us that God may bring sickness upon people as a form of discipline for sin. Notice what we are told in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29 to 30. Now, this passage is notorious for the Apostle Paul instructing uh, as far as how we're supposed to examine ourselves when it comes to approaching the Lord's table. And notice what he says here. He says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Scripture definitely supports the fact that many physical issues that we deal with are a re direct result of sin. But I don't believe that sin is the cause of every sickness. For example, when Jesus and his disciples came across a certain blind beggar in John chapter 9, as they were leaving the temple, I want you to notice the conversation that ensued. In John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, it said, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So one thing is certain. It's hard for us to know for sure what the cause of the affliction is. And this section here in James chapter 5 is a suggested procedure to follow, I believe, in cases where sin is suspected at the heart of the issue. Now, I honestly believe that the Lord still does bring healing through what's being described here in James chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. I honestly believe that if those who are sick call for the elders of the church, that they come and they pray over the individual and they even anoint the individual with oil in the name of the Lord, that what verse 15 says will actually happen. 
that the Lord can indeed heal the individual who is sick, where it says the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if you have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I still believe the Lord is doing this. I still believe that the Lord is using individuals and using pastors and the elders of the church to do exactly what's said here. But I don't believe that enough people believe in this to even consider this. I believe that that pastors, every pastor needs to always be aware of their obligation in this matter when visiting those who are sick. And let's be perfectly clear though, because there's a difference between a person being sick and their body just failing them due to age. When visiting the sick though, it's always in the back of my mind. It's always in the back of my mind that the sin, that there could be sin at the root of this physical affliction at the root of this sickness, whoever the individual may be. I don't believe that thought crosses our minds enough. And as a result, I think many illnesses, many sickness that might have been healed had what's mentioned here in James chapter 5 been employed continue to afflict. And as we look at this passage, I think the best way to understand this is that a believer, because this context is speaking about believers, A believer has wandered off into sin. He has remained in his sin. And God has disciplined him by bringing this physical affliction, this sickness into his life for the purpose of bringing this individual back to himself. And when the believer recognizes that God is the one who has brought the sickness upon him because of his unconfessed sin, His responsibility is to do, as it says here in verse number 14, to call for the elders of the church. He is to go and seek out the help. He is to confess his sins. They are to anoint him with oil. They're to to pray over him. And if sin is the cause of the sickness, then God, I believe, will raise him up. If sin is cared for through confession, genuine confession, there will be no further need for discipline. I believe God takes away the discipline and the believer is restored to physical health. There's plenty of consequences that they face while they're sick but I believe that God is going to bring restoration. If sin is dealt with properly, it is confessed and prayer is made on behalf of the individual. One of the main purposes of confession is for us to point out and to isolate our sins. As long as our sin remains unconfessed, don't ever expect that your problems are going to go away on their own. Sin needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with specifically. We can't just pray some generic prayer and and ask God to heal us from all of our sin without naming them, without calling it what it is, without dealing specifically with each, each individual sin. Each sin has to be confessed. Sins need to be confessed. Prayers need to be made because we've seen it and maybe we've experienced it ourselves how real backsliding is for Christians. And this is what James is referring to in the final two chapters, final two verses of this chapter. Again, he says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, believers, he's not talking about unsaved. He's talking about those who are saved. If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. He doesn't specifically mention prayer in those two verses. But it is implied in the restoration process of the backsliding Christian. And notice that the responsibility for prayer and the responsibility for helping the backsliding Christian falls on the shoulders of the body of believers. The church, they're the ones responsible. Again, verse 19 begins, it says, Brethren, if any of you, if any of your congregation, if any of the body of believers, anyone among you 
heirs from the truth, it's your responsibility to be praying for them. It's your responsibility to come alongside them. It's your responsibility to show them the error of their way and to convert the sinner, it says, from the error of his way. It's on us to be helping those around us. This is the message from Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have to be caring for one another, even if some are harder to love than others. Because he says in verse number 20, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking to a group of believers and one of them backsliding. You're not losing your salvation because you can't lose it. But he's saying physical death can be avoided through the physical affliction that God will bring because of the sin that is going unconfessed. As the word soul is frequently used to describe the life of a person, that's what he's talking about here. He says, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Literally, what he's saying is that we need to be watching out for the, the health and safety of fellow Christians because it could be that a fellow believer allows sin in his life through which God is going to bring chastisement, physical affliction that may lead to death. When Christians are active in seeking to restore fellow Christians who have wandered away from the truth, we're able to help them physically in so many different instances. When we help to restore a wayward Christian, we don't get our sins forgiven. We get the joy of knowing that the pattern of sin in our brother and our sister's life has been stopped. And that's what we should be working actively towards. Notice fourth, we should also be praying for national issues. Pray for national issues. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Pray for national issues. James draws our attention to the Old, Old Testament prophet in Elijah. This was one of the most honored men in all of Jewish history. Elijah is mentioned in the New Testament. He's mentioned more than any other Old Testament prophet. Elijah is mentioned 28 times in the Gospels alone, to the point that he was probably commonly spoken of among the people. Elijah's appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration was quite telling. As the disciples were not surprised to even see him. The Bible declares them being afraid, but certainly not surprised. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, where we read about this account, in verses 1 through 4, we read about Peter suggesting to build a tabernacle for him. There is an expectation that they should see him. It's not a surprise that they're seeing him there. We also have another reference to Elijah with the cry of Jesus from the cross, where he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in Matthew 27 and in verse 47 and then in verse 49, we have the record of what was thought by the bystanders of what Jesus cried out. Listen to what it says there. They, they thought, it said, some of them stood there when they heard that 
said, This man calleth for Elias. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. So many people thought that he was calling for the prophet Elijah to come. Elijah was such a revered man in history in those days that Jews actually believed that he had some supernatural powers. Now, when you read about his life in the Old Testament, he certainly seemed to have some supernatural powers, calling down fire from heaven on several occasions, but God was the author of all of that. Praying, as it says here in, in James chapter 5, and having the rain stopped, heaven shut up for three and a half years, and then praying again and having the floodgates of heaven open up and bring rain like it's never been seen before. But what we see here in James chapter 5 and verse 17 is that it says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. You know what that's telling us? He was just like you and me. So we don't put him on a pedestal. He's one of my favorite Bible characters, but we don't put him on a pedestal. He was subject to the same human emotions and weaknesses that you and I both have. God used Elijah to do some truly miraculous things. But what we often forget about is that Elijah went through some dark seasons of despair and depression to the point where he actually begged and pleaded for God to just end his life. Take it away, he said. And what we find is that God was always there with him and answered the prayers of his struggling servant. This average man who faced similar hardships that you and I face today, prayed earnestly for God to work a miracle to change the hearts of the nation of Israel. That's why he was praying. Notice again what it says here in verse 17 and 18. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. When Elijah prayed the first time, the Lord stopped the rain. Then he prayed a second time, and the Lord caused the rain to return. It is an unbelievable story that we read about. To think about the power of such a prayer to affect nature. The effectual, fervent prayer, James 5.16 says, availeth much. Of the righteous man availeth much. The effectual, fervent prayer of this righteous man, of this earnest man, praying, a, a godly man, praying in, in love to God, causing an evil king and an entire nation to bow down and give glory to God who can shut the heavens up. But let's be clear on one thing. The power of these prayers was never in Elijah, but the almighty God to whom Elijah prayed. Remember, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just like you and me. But God was working through him in such a mighty way because he was giving himself over to be used by God. The Almighty God, working in believers, produces powerful prayer that can have an effect on nature and nations. It's incredible to think about what God can do. We don't even give him the opportunity at times because we don't even yield ourselves over to be used by him. As we close tonight, I'd like to share an excerpt with you from the story of Corey Tenboom. During their agonizing imprisonment at the Nazi death camp of Ravensbrück, Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy suffered from ill treatment and lack of medical care. They were treated worse than common criminals, though their only crime had been sheltering Jews who were seeking to escape the murderous tyranny of Nazism. The prison that they were confi confined in was 
overcrowded. The living conditions there in the barracks were just atrocious. Disease, malnutrition were rampant, and they feared that they, like so many of the other prisoners that were there around them, would soon be languishing in death. And in their misery, they often were forced to depend completely on God. And God heard and answered their prayers, sometimes demonstrating his miraculous protection in the most desperate situations. When Betsy, her sister, was desperately ill on one occasion, Corey realized that this tiny bottle of medicine was down to the last drop. My instinct, she wrote, was always to hoard. Betsy was growing so very weak, but others were ill as well. It was hard to say no to eyes that were burning with fever, hands that shook with chill. I tried to save it for the very weakest, but even these soon numbered, 15, 20, 25. Corey's heart went out to them, but she desperately feared that sharing those precious drops of medicine with everyone that was sick was going to rob her sister, Betsy, of the only chance that she had for survival. And Betsy recognized her need for the medication, but she reminded Corey of the account of the widow of Zarephath, who shared with Elijah and whose handful of meal and small amount of oil lasted as long as there was a need. Betsy was convinced that God could perform a similar miracle for them. Corey initially belittled the idea of such a miracle happening in modern times, but she soon was a believer. Every time I tilted the little bottle, a drop appeared at the top of the glass stopper. It just couldn't be. I held it up to the light, trying to see how much was left, but the dark brown glass was too thick to see through. Each day, she continued to dispense what she thought was the last drop, every single time. Until one day, when a female guard who had shown a little bit of kindness to the prisoners before smuggled a small quantity of vitamins into the barracks for the prisoners. Corey was thrilled, but she determined to first finish the drops in the bottle. But that night, no matter how long I held it upside down or how hard I shook it, not another drop appeared. Folks, God answers prayer. God answers prayer. In fact, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Those words often fall on deaf ears. Don't get too much thought because I think we struggle at being effectual and fervent in prayer. We'll pray, sure. We'll look to God in times of distress. We won't do nearly as much singing psalms in times of rejoicing and when we are merry. But I feel like we don't know enough about the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man because we're failing to be godly and righteous because we're failing to go to God effectually, fervently. These verses and these words here mean so much with regards to what our prayer life should be. I think at times we, we look at what our prayer life should be and think that as long as we're praying, then we're doing what we are called to do. But not as often is, is the case that our prayers are indeed effectual, fervent prayer. 
And that doesn't, doesn't mean that we have to be, as I mentioned earlier, in a specific posture or in a specific position or that we even have to pray for an hour in length. Effectual fervent prayer could last all of about 10 seconds if it's genuine, if it's sincere, if you are righteous in what you're praying to God for. But God is just seeking individuals who will be solely committed to him for his will to be accomplished, for his promise and his purpose to be pursued before he brings about these massive changes in the lives of those who are praying. But don't ever lose heart because God's word is clear. He answers prayer and that the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Don't ever lose heart in your prayer because you're never seeing the results you want to see. Maybe re-examine your prayer life. Maybe re-examine your own personal life. Maybe there's unconfessed sin in your life that needs to be addressed. Maybe there is something that is standing between you and God. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing songs. Either way, may we go to God. May we find out what it is to have effectual, fervent prayer in our own lives. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time? Lord, I know that as we go through our own individual lives, Lord, we, we look at prayer as something that is necessary. Lord, times we don't even view it as necessary as, as other areas. But Lord, I pray that we would reevaluate things in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would realize that it is just as important as reading your word. Lord, it is absolutely vital for our personal walk and relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that our prayers would become real. I pray, Lord, that we would demonstrate what effectual, fervent prayer is really like. And I pray, Lord, that each of these prayers are being offered up from righteous individuals who are seeking to honor you and glorify you with all that we do. Lord, I know that each one of us are dealing with different situations and circumstances. There may be some that are afflicted here tonight. I pray, Lord, that they heed the instruction to pray. Lord, if any of us are merry, I pray that we would sing psalms. Lord, that it would be evidenced on our face, that it would be evidenced in our countenance, that we're excited to be a child of yours, both now and eternally. Lord, and that we would have that excitement just exude from within us so that others around us are affected and influenced by it in a positive way. Lord, use us for such a, a great purpose. Lord, often we look at the prophet Elijah and we think that that is something that is by no means attainable to us. And not that we're seeking to emulate what he did, but Lord, your word makes it so clear that he was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly. And you brought about a change one in which none of us could have ever dreamed of seeing. Lord, help us to never shortchange what your power and ability can do, but to just come to you with our prayers, to shower you with praises as we come to you in our psalms and singing as well. Lord, may we certainly find out very soon what effectual fervent prayer looks like. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.